Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Are you guys ready to get into God's Word today? Are you ready to learn something today? Oh, I reckon it's about 20% of you are. Doesn't matter. The rest of us, we're going to learn something anyway. I want to start a conversation, which is probably, it's kind of this part of Mark where it's, it's kind of like this, probably three weeks or so. And it's this conversation that's going to begin today or continue next week and the following week, um, it'll continue a little bit more. But I really want to start this conversation about how the kingdom of God takes root in my life and in your life. Because it's one thing to talk about the kingdom of God, God's reign breaking in and breaking forth. And sometimes I can think about this thing which is so sort of so big and so huge. And I go to God, yeah, but how about um, me? Is anyone else like that? We could talk about Vasa. And that's really exciting, eh? You know, you say, oh, God, we're going to see, we want to see the region of Goslals and Armadale change for you. Oh, and that's exciting. But sometimes I'll wake up and say, Lord Jesus, I just need you to change me, you know. And not even just that, I just need you to help me just with one thought that's always tripping me up. I need just one habit that I've been dealing with. There's something, I need something of your kingdom to come and change and transform me. Is anyone else like that? Like that. In his last Narnia book, um, this was actually a quote that was used in the last um, session in the Bible course. Is everyone... I got half the church through the Bible course. I need to figure out how to get the other half through the Bible course. Um, but in his last book, in um, his Narnia book, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis, he brilliantly closes um, with Aslan's followers following Aslan into this new future. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It, absolutely brilliant. And this is what he writes. He says, For them, all of their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that just brilliant? That is so gospel. So, so, so brilliant. There is something inside of each and every one of us that informs us that there actually is something more. I see this personally all the time. Um, my job is pretty much to walk with people from birth to the grave, from the cradle to the grave. And I've got to tell you, I've done many, many funeral services. I've facilitated them. I lead them um, for all sorts of, of different people. And at every single funeral service, doesn't matter if you're a believer in Jesus or you're a non-believer, there is intrinsic that there is this hope, isn't there? It doesn't matter. Any single place where I go, any single funeral, it is always the same. There is this hope. There is this longing. There is something inside of every single human heart that is wishing, that is hoping, that is praying, that there is something more after the grave. And this is what the Word of God actually speaks to. Our world is actually in hot pursuit of a preferred future. One person has actually said every human is in search for Eden, and every now and then we get a glimpse. Isn't it a bit like that? We're all searching, we're all longing, we're all stretching. At the moment, we're kind of in this promised um, techno-utopia. 
which has come about only really recently. And what we are told, and the promise that we are told, is that um, science and technology will create an ideal society for humanity. We are currently in the midst of that. There is a new renaissance, which is currently in play, which tells us that, um, man, we're going to be able to make advances in every arena of life, whether that be political, whether that be social, whether that be economical, um, whether that be cultural. In fact, there are people who are proposing and are promising that this techno-utopia is going to be so profound and such a far-reaching movement that it would be even able to reach the depths of transforming a human heart. See, everyone's actually stretching. Everyone is actually wanting. Because inside of us, we all know things are broken, don't we? I look in the world and I see things that are wonderful, but I also see things that are a bit terrible. If I'm honest enough, I look inside of my heart and I say, there is great wonder inside of Dave Ryder, but my goodness, there are some things inside of Dave Ryder. I say, where the heck did that come from? There is a brokenness inside of me, if I'm honest. And just like when I am thirsty for water, that thirst just merely informs me that the existence of water must be somewhere. And when we look into this world and we look into our hearts and we say there is both wonderful and terrible, it informs us that there must be something right somewhere. That there must be a journey, there must be a destination where there is no poverty, where there aren't little kids dying, where, where, where there aren't things like that. It lets us know that it informs that we're all on this journey somewhere. Everyone kind of has that, but there is a crossroad um, with that universal pursuit. The competing idea to Christianity is that I can look deep within myself, use all of my strength, use my own breath, and I can reach for the stars and by my own effort become more human. That brokenness can get healed by my own effort. Christianity, however, says that's never going to work. As much as we try, as much as we try to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps, Christianity actually says that's not going to work. There is an Eden that we're all longing for, and we all long to actually be a little bit more human. We all long for to be a little bit less broken. But your own breath, my own breath, is not going to take us anywhere significantly. Christianity, Christianity declares that it is only the breath of God that transforms and heals us to become more and more human. It's funny, I think, that the world is all wanting to go to the right destination. It's just a crossroad. Because the majority of the world says we can get there by our own efforts. And Jesus says, you ain't going to get anywhere. But if you give your trust in me, it's actually going to be my breath upon your life that's actually going to take you to the place where you truly long to be. That's the distinction. That is the distinction. That's the destination. Um, and the... New Testament promises so many things. I think of 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's an amazing thing, that if we're in Christ, the new creation is here. And my question is that if the new creation is here, if something new has come about, if with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something changed in this world, in this cosmos forever, if this is a current reality, I don't want to be one of those guys who profess to be Jesus, come to church, lift up hands and, and spout all kinds of stuff and never live in it. That's the question which I have. How in the world do I actually live in it? Not just know about it, not even just preach about it. How do I actually, Dave Ryder, step into it and live in it? And that's the thing I want to talk about. What I find interesting is that as we look in um, Mark 
chapter 3, and we're going to finish Mark chapter 3 today. If you've been on our journey, we've gone through Mark chapter 3 fast, last week and this week. The thing which I find um, stands out in Mark chapter 3 is that if you and I aspire to live in this new creation, live in the kingdom of God, be participants with Jesus in bringing about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Mark chapter 3 demonstrates to us how not to do it. How not to do it. We finished off um, last week where we were looking at Mark 3, verse 6. It'll be up on the screen. At once the Pharisees went away, met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. And we broke that down last week. You'll have to go listen to the podcast. What's happened here? Let me unpack this. It's really interesting that you have these Pharisees and they decide they are so upset with Jesus. They are rejecting him to such a point where they go and they partner with um, the supporters of Herod in order to figure out a way how they can kill Jesus. So what's happening here? Just a brief recap. The Pharisees, as we mentioned last week, they're actually trying to enforce some things in Israel with the hope and with the motive that by actually abiding to the Torah, by abiding to God's law, that it would usher in the presence of God. That God would come to his temple. That God would come and he would renew Israel. And you know what? If anything is renewed, if God comes and renews a person, that person's becoming more human, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? You know? Sometimes when we feel like we come to our end and we go and we refresh ourselves, we renew ourselves, we feel more alive. We even use that language, I feel more alive. That's what they're hoping. They are actually got the motive, we want God to come so that we can actually be more human. And not just that, so God can come, fulfill His promise, renew Israel, renew the world and kick out our enemies. That's what they're wanting. And the reason why is because they've understood that they're still in exile. We went through this last week and the last couple of months. They're still in exile. God hasn't come. And the reason why they're still in exile is because Israel are disobeying God. They're still in idolatry and all that. But here's the interesting thing. So the Pharisees have this motive. They want to usher in the presence of God. But in so doing, when they reject Jesus, this is really interesting. When they reject Jesus... They move to a place where they start partnering with the Herodians or those who are supporting Herod. Herod represents Rome. Rome are idolaters. So here's the irony. The Pharisees are wanting to keep Israel from idolatry, right? They are wanting um, God to come and renew Israel so they will be more flourishing and they'll be more human and they'll, they'll actually move to the promise. But when they reject Jesus, they actually partake in idolatry. That's an important thing that, God, that the Gospel of Mark is bringing out as we go through the next little phase. That you can either accept or you can reject Jesus. But when you reject Jesus, you actually move over and you're stepping into, as it were, in the bed with these other idolaters. An idol, that's an interesting word, isn't it? We don't use that these days, do we? Idol. Idol. Um, there's a lot of language in the Bible which we don't use. Idol's one of them. An idol is pretty much anything good that we make ultimate in our life. 
if you think about it like that. There are good things in our life, but we have this propensity to make good things ultimate things. And when they become ultimate things, they actually become idols in our life. And anything good can actually become an idol, you know. A job is a good thing. Amen? Job's a great thing. Um, But it should not become an ultimate thing, you know. It's great to have a job. It's great to work. We're created to work. It's fantastic. It's, It's very helpful when you get a paycheck and you can pay your bills, isn't it? You know, work is actually a good thing. But my job should not be my ultimate security. My job should not be my ultimate place of satisfaction. And my job should not be the ultimate place of my identity. You see, a good thing can become an ultimate thing. When it actually becomes the ultimate place of satisfaction, the ultimate place of identity, the ultimate place of security. And it doesn't just apply to work. Money is great, isn't it? Amen. Who likes some money? Money, 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 money. You guys don't like money? Does anyone think money is very evil? Anyone thinks money is good? Money is actually neutral. Depends how you use it. Money is actually neutral. But money, money is fantastic. Money is great. But money can very easily become something ultimate in your life, can't it? You know, very, very easy. I know a lot of people. In fact, um, I was with um, our in, in, um, in-laws, um, my sister-in-law, and she was talking about this guy and got caught on this thing and money became something ultimate and he lost everything. Lost his marriage, lost his family, on a road to recovery and restoration. But money can very easily become an idol when it becomes something ultimate in our life. Sex is fantastic, isn't it? All the married people said... Dear Lord, you guys better be careful. I'll do a whole series on sex. I tell you, I will. You know I will. It is important for us to have a good, healthy sex life. It is important, married people. It is important. It is important that we talk about it. Otherwise, we're going to get our understanding and our theology about sex from outside in the world inside of inside of the church. He made it beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. But you know, um, sex can easily become an ultimate thing, can't it? Very easily. Um, Our spouses. I've got a great spouse. I'm sure the great spouse is here. It's fantastic to have someone who's, who's actually committed and decided to walk side by side. You know, a, a, a godly marriage is a phenomenal thing when you serve uh, and she serves you, when you're serving each other. When you actually have that thing in your mind, you know what, this is not about me, this is actually about my spouse. And if anyone's going to be on a pedestal, it's not going to be me, it's going to be my spouse. And if you have two, a man and a woman come together and they both have that attitude, man, that is heaven. That is heaven. That is heaven, Right? But sometimes we can actually make our spouse the ultimate thing. And the problem is, is that your spouse cannot be the ultimate thing. It's unfair. Uh, I think sometimes we need to actually stop this incessant expectations that we have on our husband or we have on our wife. Hey, ladies, you will not be able to get everything you want from him. He's not created that way. He's not put together that way. And fellas, we cannot get everything that we need from our wives. Amen? Have you figured that one out as yet? And sometimes the clash is because we want to get everything from our wife or wife wants to get everything from her husband and it was never intended to be that way because guess what? They are not God. They are not God. One of the best things you can do as a husband is actually say to your wife, hey, go and hang out with your girlfriends because there is something in that community when women get together, they can actually give each other something that we cannot. Did you know that? Have you figured that one out as yet? 
And sometimes there is this insecurity inside of men and they want to actually control and keep their wives from actually having friends and doing all this sort of stuff, not knowing that you are sabotaging your own marriage. Come on. Anyway, maybe we'll do a marriage thing as well. (laughs) These are really important things, guys. They are very practical things. True spirituality is very practical, okay? I don't know why I'm going on these tangents, but anyway. Um, But we have this propensity to make good things ultimate things. And um, what happens, this is what happens, and we we see it all the time. We can identify it in the world, but we find it very hard to identify it in our own lives. When we become enslaved, when we make good things ultimate things, they become idols. And when we have idols in our life, we become slaves to them. We do. We become enslaved to them. And whenever you become enslaved to something, whenever you become enslaved to like sex, to work, to this unhealthy relationship, whenever you become enslaved to something, something happens to you. It's almost like you get contorted. It's almost like the real you can't come to the fore. It's almost like there are these changes and there are these restrictions. You know, because the real you is no longer on display. That sometimes it could be um, shown up as um, deep fears or anxieties. Sometimes we can just get in this um, place where we have these insatiable lusts, where there is this severe selfishness, or when there are these spiraling addictions. Now, now tell me, we all know stories and we all know people, whether they be celebrities, or, and they have these things. Now tell me, is that a picture of someone who is truly human? No, because this is what happens. When you become enslaved to something, you go in a process of becoming dehumanized. The real you isn't up showing. How many times have you met someone? I've done this many, many times, especially with young people. They get in this relationship, wrong person. They don't see it because, you know what, they're in it so they can't see it, right? And you look at their life and say, oh, I used to know you back then and now like, you, you, you're a shell of a person. What's going on there? Well, there is something that is keeping you and contorting you and twisting you and you're a slave to it because something good became something ultimate. It's an idol. That's what an idol is. And what happens in this kind of scenario is that it's very easy to actually see that these Pharisees having this motive for these generations of ushering in the presence of God, of bringing liberty and all that, they move to a place where they become enslaved to something to the point where they are partnering with Rome to kill Jesus. It's very easy for us to look at Scripture and to look at a person and say, you know what, they've become enslaved. But the reality is, each and every one of us, myself included, we all get enslaved to things, don't we? All the time. There are some times where there is just this Fear that grips me, I don't know why it does. Or these anxieties that grip me, I don't know why it does. And I think it's great that Jesus actually has an answer and antidote and actually a way for us to walk through that. And part of this chapter is actually showing us what it is. So we're going to read from verse 20 to verse 30. Is any of that resonating with anyone here? Does anyone have this aspiration? I would actually like to be, I'd like to be less broken. I'd like to be more healthy. I'd like to be more healed. I'd like to be more whole. I'd like to be more free. Well, Jesus is the answer to that. From verse 20. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. 
But the teachers of, uh, of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He will never survive. Let me illustrate this further. What is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he was possessed by an evil spirit. This passage is really important for us living in 2019 because it clearly identifies who our enemy is. Okay, Because sometimes we think our enemy is all sorts of people, but Jesus is actually articulating who our enemy actually is. So Israel and his leaders, her leaders, are very disappointed in Jesus at this stage. Very disappointed. They can acknowledge his power, it's undeniable. They can acknowledge his authority, it's absolutely undeniable. But they were expecting that when Messiah came, that Messiah would use his power and his authority, that Messiah would come and use his mighty arm in order to destroy their enemy, which was Rome. They were pretty disappointed. You can understand that, right? We want Rome gone. Jesus comes up on the scene and it appears that Jesus is not really dealing with Rome. In fact, Jesus doesn't seem to have a political agenda. Okay? He doesn't seem to. He has a kingdom agenda. He doesn't have a political agenda. He has a kingdom agenda. And this is disappointing people in Israel. In fact, if you look at the story, they're expecting Jesus to rebuke the leaders of Rome. But when Jesus comes on the scene, if he's rebuking anyone, guess who he's rebuking? The spiritual leaders. He has a kingdom agenda, not a political agenda at this point. Jesus' mighty deeds, his mighty arms are dealing with sickness and disease. Isolation from community. Racism. The implementation of religious commands that God never gave. He's going after this stuff. Jesus is definitely going after an enemy. He's just not going after the enemy that Israel wanted him to go after. And that's where the disappointment lies. And we've already been introduced to this enemy because Mark actually lays it out. As soon as Jesus is water baptized, he goes and he actually confronts the real enemy that he actually came to humiliate, to destroy, to put an end to. This is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, which says, Then, after the baptism, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Everyone say Satan. He was confronted. He was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. We don't have great language for this, but let me use some language. Satan, evil powers, principalities. These are the things that Jesus comes to destroy. Some time's passed, and we come into Mark chapter 3. So Jesus has already confronted Satan. Did you know that in the Gospel of Mark, that is the only time we actually see a confrontation between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness? So apparently, in that confrontation between Satan and Jesus, something got dealt with, and something got done. And the reason why it got done over there is the reason why Jesus is able to flow and walk and do things with such fluidity and do everything on his own terms. And this is what he's articulating happening now. 
So some time has passed, we come to this interaction in Mark chapter 3. It says, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. This is family. This is family. This is like little Mary away in a manger. You know, little Mary, angelic visitors, magi comes, you know, ponders all these things in her heart. Mary's family, right? So family comes. How many of you guys had your family come say, he's out of his mind. He's out of his cotton-picking mind. (laughs) He's out of his mind. Evidently, Jesus is saying things and behaving in such a way that even his family are saying he's out of his mind. Okay. And after these five conflicts that we've talked about in the previous weeks, there comes this grand accusation which he is going to respond to. The teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. That's the accusation. The reason why Jesus has all this power, all this authority, they cannot deny that he has authority. They cannot deny he has power. They cannot deny that when Jesus rocks up into a room, things happen. When Jesus goes into a region, things really, really happen. They can't deny it. So what they're saying, the reason why he's got all this power is because he's possessed by an evil spirit. And Jesus responds, and he's articulating what has happened. And consequently, in articulating what has happened, it lets us know how we can live. So verse 23, Jesus called them over. I love that, eh? You know, if you've met someone, someone starts talking about you, right? And you're just kind of like, oh, I don't want to get into it. Not Jesus. They start talking about him, and he said, come here. Call them over straight away. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided by a civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by a feuding feud will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He will never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Tie him up, plunder his house. When idolatry takes its grip on us, it does enslave us. But we need to understand that behind these things, there are actually powers. Behind the pharaohs of this world, again, we haven't got great language. There is Satan. There is evil powers. There are principalities. We know that there is good and evil in this world, don't we? It's evident, right? There is good, there is evil. We know that. We're intrigued by it, actually. How many movies at the moment? It's like, we're looking at these movie trailers on TV, and I'm going to, babe, do you want to go see that? She's like, uh-uh. <laughs> we understand there is good and there is evil. But Jesus is actually saying that I have done something about those powers. And it happened in that confrontation. It happened. He's saying... How can you go into a strong man's house and pretty much plunder or do whatever you want? And this is exactly what we've been seeing in Jesus' life. He's doing everything on his own terms. He's doing everything exactly how he wants. And he says, this is how, because there's someone even stronger 
than the strong man who went in there, tied him up, and now the reason why I'm doing whatever I want and the kingdom of God is breaking in and breaking forth and you're seeing healings, you're seeing deliverances. The reason why is because I've bound them. That's where my authority comes from. That's why. Didn't Jesus say in his little parable about new wine and new cloths, that when something new breaks in, the old has to break off. When God brings something new, when you can't hang on to the old, otherwise you're going to get torn up. It's going to hurt. The only way something new is going to break in is something old has to break off. This is something new. And I love this. He's actually saying, you know, if Satan's actually divided against himself, how can he stand? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan fights against himself, he cannot stand. But here's the thing. This is what Jesus is saying. You know, Satan is not fighting against himself. And his house is not divided against itself. Yet the kingdom of darkness is disintegrating before your very eyes. That was quite clever how he said that. He's saying, how can a house divided against itself like stand? And then he goes on to say, Satan's house isn't divided against itself, but it ain't standing now. It's not standing now. Jesus bound Satan in the wilderness. We only get a glimpse of it in the Gospel of Mark. That's why he's doing whatever he pleases. That's why he's doing things on his own terms. And please understand, this confrontation in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan, this is not a confrontation about power. It's not about power. You're talking about Satan who's been created against Jesus, who's Yahweh. There's no issue of power. Sometimes we get these pictures of like Jesus and Satan and his arm wrestle, and they've got the same size biceps and all that. What a load of rubbish. What a load of rubbish. Risen Jesus. We read, we, we looked at this last year in, in Revelation, didn't we? Jesus, glorified Jesus. He says, I'm the guy who holds the armies of the angels in my hand like peppercorns. That's how insignificant, power-wise. This isn't a confrontation of power. This is a confrontation about if Jesus is willing or wanting or will he yield his righteous character. It's an issue of character. And he doesn't do that. That's why the temptations come. Character. In, tr in truth, if you want to know the source of real spiritual authority, it's, we, we get mistaken because we think, we think spiritual authority looks like a really gifted man or woman up on a stage. We think that. Nah, I'm sorry. It comes from righteous character. Righteous character. This church is 50 years old. I've been a pastor for over seven years now. This church has had enough gifts on display, let me tell you. And we are coming out of a recovery of that. You know what I'm saying? It is not the display of gifts that shows if you have spiritual authority. It is a man or a woman of God who is willing to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, I will not yield my righteous character. I will live rightly and I will live godly in this world. And I may not look like big significant. I may not be the most charismatic person, but when I walk into a region, when I walk into an area, you better believe it. Things will change and transform. We have enough people wanting to display their gifts and show that as spiritual authority. And what the world is looking for is for men and women who will stand righteously. 
It's true. What does this mean for us? Like I said, this is like the first week of actually talking about this. What does it mean to be truly human? It lets me know you need to follow the logic. You need to follow the logic, right? If there are things in this world which are good and I have this propensity to make good things ultimate in my life, and when I make good things ultimate in my life, it becomes an idol. I understand it's an archaic word, but that's what I've tried to unpack that. And it becomes an idol in my life. And as soon as I have an idol in my life, it enslaves me. But behind that idol, there is actually powers at work. It lets me know that if I am in Christ, the powers that stand behind these idols in the world, they have already been defeated by Christ. Right? So it lets me know that even though things may come and tap me on the shoulder and things may try to seduce me and things may try to intrigue me, I do not need to be enslaved or ensnared to good things that can easily become ultimate things. I don't need to be a walking disaster in this world because I'm like trying to catch my tail because I'm after climbing this ladder or that ladder or that ladder or that ladder or I'm chasing this thing or that thing or this thing or I'm chasing this girl or that girl and this girl and that girl. I don't need to do that because what Jesus Christ has done, He has come and He has disarmed, He has defeated. In fact, Holy Scripture would say He made a public spectacle. In other words, He humiliated Satan. Humiliated him. Why would we live a life were we ashamed and humiliated when the power behind that has already been defeated and humiliated? This is what it lets me know. I don't need to do that. How? The question comes back to how, how, how? Well, we read on. And this is going to be kicking on in chapter 4 next week. How do we do this? Later on in Gospel of Mark shows us this visual of what it looks like. And if we get this visual and if we apply this visual, I understand this doesn't look spectacular. But sometimes in God's kingdom, we want the spectacular. And Jesus just wants to do things on his own terms. And it doesn't look the way we want it to look. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk to them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he looked around. Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Notice this, who's on the outside? This is a very big theme for Mark. Who's on the outside? Outside, inside, outside, inside. This is a big theme for Mark. Who's on the outside? Jesus' mum, Mary, is on the outside. Who'd have thought? Mary, Mary. Mary, Mary. And his brothers. Same mum, visited by an angel. Pondered all those things in her heart. But notice this. What are those on the inside doing? Verse 32. There was a crowd sitting around 
Jesus. These people are used to sitting around. They are used to sitting around Torah. Now, they are sitting around Jesus. And as they are sitting around Jesus, they are listening to Jesus. And you will find next week as we kick on, it is the way in our ability to listen that determines how the kingdom of God takes root in our heart. We've got this like mixed up world and faith where we want God to agree with us. And here's the deal. I've known, like if you keep on pursuing things that don't work, they continue not to work. Have you noticed that? For the life of me, there are some things where I think this is just too difficult. This is too hard. I'd much rather do it my own way. So I keep on doing it my own way, hoping that something will change. And guess what? Nothing ever changes. Jesus is doing everything on his own terms. And he's saying to you and he's saying to me, truth is, I may not necessarily agree with everything you say. But you are invited to agree with everything that I say. And as we come in agreement with Him, we are sitting around Jesus. We are listening to the words of Jesus. His words, like I said, are being engrafted into our heart. And the kingdom of God is breaking in and breaking forth in this region that's fantastic, but even more significantly in your heart and in my heart. And it may not happen overnight, you know. It may not happen in the first hour. But as we come with a heart to listen to the words of Jesus, as we sit at the feet of Jesus, as we take in, as we apply the things of Jesus, those things that enslave us, those chains that keep us so worried and so anxious and so bitter and so lustful and so driven, they start to fall. And we become more human, you see, because we become more like Christ. And the only man who has ever walked as a true human on this earth is Jesus. Truly human, truly God. Have you picked up that argument which I've been setting out? Because in the next chapter, we talk about this parable. Jesus goes there again. How we listen how we receive makes all the difference. There's this um, story in Mark, which I find very intriguing. I was sharing with the guys on um, Wednesday night in our prayer meeting. Um, Jesus is on a boat. There's a storm, right? Jesus is sleeping. Remember that story? Jesus gets up and says, storm, quiet it out. And the storm stills. Immediately after that, he steps into this region and this guy who's been tormented by this legion of demons comes to him. Remember that one? Right? And in one word, he casts out all of these um, demons. They go to these pigs and it's the first um, case scenario of deviled ham we ever see in history. Like, bang, there you go. One word, one word, one word, one word, right? One word calms the storms. One word casts out a legion of demons. Immediately after that, the crowd comes. They are full of fear and Jesus has just cast out these demons and now these people cast Jesus out of their region. 
And for some reason, this God who has just calmed the storm, cast out a legion of demons, allows these people to cast him out. What kind of God is this? So he goes. But you read on in Gospel of Mark. He went, but then he comes back to that same region. And that's how Jesus operates. He will come to you, He will come to me, and He will pick things, He will poke things, He will bring things to our attention. And how we receive that makes a big difference. Because if we say, okay, Jesus, man, you got me. Man, you know, Jesus, I can't lie to you. In that area, man, I'm all messed up. I'm messed up. You know it. Okay, let's work on it. Come on, God, do something. Or I can say, nah, go. And He will go. But He will come back to that same spot. That's His faithfulness. And I've learned in my life that when He comes and He starts poking around at something, I want to give that to the Lord very fast. Because I'm a little like, you know what I'm saying? I want to learn how to give that to the Lord very fast. Because I can say, no, God. But He is so loving and He is so faithful and He is so committed to you living this full, true, human experience which only comes not from your own breath but from the breath of God coming upon you. That He will continue to come back and He will come back and He will come back and He will come back. He is that good. He is that loving. He is that faithful. He is so committed to you being truly human in this world. As we close today, you know, the next two weeks are going to have exactly the same stuff we're going to be talking about. I love the week after next. We're going to talk about the seed, which is crazy. Awesome. We're going to do that. What's in your life? Is there an area in your life where you're tied up? I know for me, there have been areas in my life and still are where I get frustrated and I get angry. I have no idea why I got angry about that. If someone pokes you in a certain area, do you know exactly and do they know exactly what's going to happen? If you do not know what that area is, ask your spouse. They will tell you. You do not need the Holy Spirit to tell you that. Your wife will tell you. Your husband will tell you. Is there an inability in your life to prefer others over yourself? That's a big one for Christians. Our whole life is supposed to be preferring others. But we can sometimes find that very hard. What about indifference? You can see the plight of other people who bear the image of God of humanity and there's hurt there's struggle there's poverty there is injustice and inside of me I'm just indifferent that comes to all of us and maybe we're outside the room standing and we're looking in and other people are crowded and sitting around Jesus and Jesus is just saying to you, hey, stop being on the outside, come on the inside. But he leaves it up to you and he leaves it up to me.
But when we do this, when we listen to the words of Jesus, He shapes us and He changes us and He forms us and we become more and more human. In the midst of a world that is so intent on dehumanizing people, Jesus comes to us so we can live true life and be truly human in this world. Did you pick that up? It's a great chapter. What not to do. Go read chapter.